Hello and welcome back. My name is Professor Christopher Gennari. This is History 101. In this episode, we deal with the ancient Hebrews, the ancient Israelites. And we start with a people on the move. The Hebrews are a Canaanite people. They're Canaanite-speaking people. They're Mesopotamian. But they're one of a group of Canaanite speakers who are on the move during the Bronze Age collapse. Now that's very important because it tells us they are one of those people who are moving. And it makes sense because in the most important parts of the Torah is the story of being on the move, of leaving Egypt and looking for a new homeland. So even a thousand years later, there is the remembrance of this kind of national movement, which makes sense since, as we discussed in the Bronze Age collapse, around 1000 BC, the world was on the move. And they end up settling between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. That's east of Egypt. That is southwest of Babylon. Advantages. It's the middle of nowhere. So that's good. Because it's east of Egypt. It's on the other side of the Sinai River. Egypt's far away. A desert separates you from them. That's good. And Babylon is up the coast and down the Euphrates. All right. So the advantage is there's not too many big other powers around you you have to worry about. Problem. Disadvantages. It's the middle of nowhere. It's not Babylon. It's not Egypt. There's not much there that is going to force huge amounts of trade, that's going to bring new ideas and um, bring people together to form cosmopolitan super cities. The other disadvantage is it's east of Egypt and southwest of Babylon, which is far away from them as long as those two never get into a fight. But it's right in the middle of them the moment those two do get into a fight. You could see the problem. And there's going to be several wars between Egypt and Babylon. And if not Babylon, whoever the successor to Babylon will be, whether it's the Assyrians, whether it is uh, the Chaldeans, uh, or the Neo-Babylonians as they're called, or the Persians, all the way down through the Mongols, whoever kind of dominates the Middle East will eventually want to invade Egypt. And so to get to Egypt, you have to go through the Hebrew lands. Ancient Israel, Israel, Judea, ancient Palestine, what the Romans would have called Palestine. And that's kind of the term I'm going to use. Uh, It's not trying to be modern in any sort of way. It is not making any modern judgments on anything. It's the territory the Romans used, which was really the largest extent. It went from the hills of Lebanon to the river to the desert. And so to talk about Palestine is this entire area full of 
all of these people, these Canaanite-speaking people, of which the Hebrews are one group and will become the most dominant group. So we have to talk about Hebrew culture. They are Mesopotamian. They're Mesopotamian in their language. They are Mesopotamian uh, with Babylonian influences, especially after 586 BC. And we will get to the Babylonian captivity that happens in 586 BC. But in their laws, in their temple design, in their language, they are Mesopotamian people with Babylonian influences. And you see this. You, you read your Old Testament, you see lots of references to Babylon. Babylon is all over the place. Hebrews are constantly coming back to Babylon and saying, can you believe what they do? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Or the flood story. Or, uh, hey, let's build a temple. How are we going to build a temple? It's going to look like a Babylonian temple. Why? Because those are the biggest and they're the best and they're the obvious model. So, Culturally, the Hebrews are far more connected to Mesopotamia. But they have a tight political alliance with Egypt, which also makes sense. And the reason why is because Egypt is right over the desert. And so they're the closest big power. So say what you want. The Hebrews are important people, and that's why we're studying them. But they are not a large military power. They are going to get crushed again and again and again by others. They're a good-sized medium. They're one of the better medium powers. In the Middle East. But they are not Babylon. They are not Egypt. And an Egyptian pharaoh wants to go through the Hebrew lands, there is nothing that can stop him. Now, so this makes sense. If you're a Hebrew king, you look at Pharaoh on the other side of the Sinai Desert and you say, he'll protect me. We have to stay on his good side. We're too close. And the Pharaohs are usually very good about this. The Pharaohs come to, to whoever was in the land of Cana, whoever's in Palestine, and they say, hey, let's be allies. Why? Because Babylon, the Hittites, whoever's up there, to the Egyptians, has to, if they want to invade Egypt, come through the Sinai which means they have to go through Palestine. So they have to come through the Hebrews. The Hebrews are in the terrible location, or the awesome location, depending at what moment it is, of being the last rest stop, or the first rest stop, on the way into or out of Egypt. And it's just like, for those of you who have ever been on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, or um, for those of you who have ever been out in like Nevada, when you see a sign, last rest stop for 200 miles, you stop. You go, ah, I'll get a cup of coffee, I'll try to pee, I'll, I'll, I'll see, what, we'll see. Why? Because you know it's 200 miles of nothing. So you better just take a moment 
Likewise, you've been driving for 200 miles and you see a sign. Hey, first rest stop, 200 miles. You say, hey, I'll stop. That's Palestine. That's the land of the Hebrews. That's Cana. Because if you're Babylon wanting to invade Egypt, it's the last rest stop. But if you're Egypt trying to get to the Middle East, it's the first rest stop after the Sinai Desert. So it makes complete sense that the Hebrews have a military alliance, a political alliance with Egypt. Three, they separate themselves from other Canaanite peoples. There are several other Canaanite-speaking peoples. There are also the Phoenicians to the north who are richer and smarter than the Hebrews are. There's also the Philistines to the south on the where Gaza is or uh, on the edges of the Sinai Desert who are way scarier than the Hebrews. I mean, Goliath is a Philistine. The, the, and think about how Goliath is represented. Goliath is not represented as, oh, we can beat this guy. Oh, he's a nobody. He's a wimp. No, he is the biggest, scariest dude there is. And by the way, let's just take it aside. Goliath is probably about six foot five, six foot four, six foot five. He's not nine feet, he's not 12 feet tall. Why? Because the Hebrews are a Mediterranean people, like the Greeks, like the Romans, and they stood about five feet, two, five feet, three, on a tall day. The Philistines are apparently taller, bigger, taller, use giant swords, kind of like the Gauls, uh, the Galatians, if you know your letters in the uh, New Testament, they're taller. They probably average 5'8", five, 5'9", five, 6 foot. That's scary. In an age where you had to fight hand-to-hand, -hand, a guy who outsizes you by 6 inches is also going to outsize you by about 30 pounds, at least which means in hand-to-hand -hand combat, he is way stronger than you. This is the same problem the Romans have with the Gauls. This is the same problem the Greeks have with whoever is on the other side of their mountains to the north of them. And when the Gauls slash Galatians come charging through, charging down the Danube, it's exactly how they felt about them. These guys are giants. And if you're 5'3", a dude standing 6'5", is a giant. He doesn't need to be 9 feet tall. Now, you're taller. Americans are taller. We average around 5'9". But if you're 5'3", 6'3", 6'4", 6'5", is huge. And he's going to outweigh you by 50, 60, 80 pounds. Which means when he hits you with his shield, you go flying backwards. 
There's a reason why in boxing and MMA, we don't allow a dude who's 100 pounds heavier made of muscle to fight a dude 100 pounds lighter, even if he's made of muscle. We don't allow it because the guy who's heavier, if he ever connects, is going to crush him. And so the Hebrews are surrounded by people who are superior to them, Phoenicians, who are scarier, Philistines, to the south, or who are similar, just like them, other Canaanite-speaking peoples. The problem, if you are surrounded by people who are just like you and people who are tougher than you and smarter than you, is how do you define yourself? How do you say, hey, I'm special, I'm important, I matter? Because when you look around, there's people who are just like you. They're a little different, but they're more or less just like you. And there's other people who are clearly living a better life than you are. How do you make yourself better? And so we see a process of the Hebrews doing things that separate themselves out from other Canaanite peoples. They are not the Phoenicians. And they are certainly not the Philistines. And so how do they separate themselves out? And so they start doing things culturally that separate themselves out. And we see this. They're writing the rules. They're writing Moses' rules. They're right there. They are in diet, circumcision, and then religion. So diet. Let's talk about diet. There's a whole list of things. Hebrews are not allowed to eat. Why? Oh, well, they're bad. They're, they're dirty. Well, everyone else is eating them. So what does that say? Oh, they're religiously dirty. Well, everyone else is eating them. So again, what does that say? So what can't ancient Hebrews eat? Well, the most important thing they can't eat is pork. Why? Why pork? Why not beef? Why not lamb? Why pork? Well, turns out the first domesticated animal used primarily for food in the Middle East is the pig. Everybody ate pork. Everybody loves pork. Pork chops, bacon. Everybody eats it. So by saying we don't eat pork, what are you saying? We are different from you. We are not only different from you, we are different from everybody. Because we don't eat the one thing everybody else eats. Now you can wrap it up in... God said so, and you have all these other reasons. Oh, it's sinful, or it's dirty, or what? whatever. It doesn't matter. It's the fact everyone else ate it. Notice Christians can eat pork. I'm Italian. I love good bacon. 
Christmas. We have Christmas. We have a Christmas ham. Now, wait a minute. You're going to tell me that eating pork is sinful and dirty. And yet Christians and Catholics throughout the world eat a Christmas ham on Jesus' birthday. Well, that doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense, now, does it? Unless the religious part really is just a veneer. It's just the excuse. Which is what it is. And that's fine. It doesn't make anything worse. It's saying we're different. We're different from these other people. And if we're different, it's also a little bit of a hint saying we're better. Everyone else eats pig. We don't. We can, with, we can withhold from doing so. We're, we're better than they are. Why do Christians eat pork? Because the Romans ate pork. And when St. Paul went to the Greeks and went to the Romans and said, Hey, become a Christian. Jesus is awesome. Jesus is awesome. People said, Great. What do I have to do? Because religion always has a, you have to do things in ancient religions, right? There's always, there's always a price to be paid. There's an entrance fee. You know, you don't expect to get into a club for free. And if you get into a club for free, it's not a very good club. So there's always a price to be paid. No problem. So you say, great. What do we have to do? And St. Paul says, uh, you have to stop eating pork. And the Romans said, uh, you mean bacon? He said, yeah. You mean ham? Yeah. Pork chops? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I have Dionysus that lets me drink as much as I want. And then I can eat bacon. Think I'm keeping that God. And St. Paul says, whoa, 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 watching these people leave. Whoa, 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 whoa. Come back. Just kidding. You can keep eating bacon. And people said, all right, tell me about this Jesus guy. He sounds kind of fascinating. So Christians can eat pork. Why? They already ran the world. They were Romans. Romans were already in charge of the world by 100 AD or 100 CE, whichever numer uh, uh, nomenclature you want to use. They already ran the world. They already knew they were special. They didn't have to change and make to differentiate themselves from that. Now, later on, by the 400s, when we get St. Augustine, Christians will, but we'll talk about that when we get there. But early on, Christianity had to change and had to separate itself from Judaism. But Judaism, very early on, was separating itself out from the other Canaanites. So, Kini pork. Two. And other things. There are lots of other things. But all of those other things were popular. You have to understand that. They didn't stop eating anything that nobody ate. Everything they stopped eating, everybody else around them ate and enjoyed eating. So. Okay. Circumcision. Now, to describe this delicately... All boys are born with a hoo-hoo on their ho-ho. Okay, maybe I need another description. All boys on their ho-ho are born with a turtleneck. 
so, what Hebrews decided to do was cut that off. Was go, you know, that piece, don't need it. Um, and you can understand why other people might not do that. In fact, the Hebrews are so unique in this for so long that even in the 20th century, SS and Gestapo soldiers wanting to find Jews hiding as um, German Christians made them drop their pants. And if they were circumcised, uh, yeah, you're a Jew. Now, here's the thing. Anglo peoples, British, Canadians, Americans, Australians, um, New Zealanders, um, I don't know about white South Africans, I would imagine so, because it's a very Anglo thing, are also well circumcised. Something like 85% of all American men are, are circumcised. Basically, white men um, are essentially all circumcised. Uh, African American men are almost all, it's like 85 or 90 percent as well, the last statistic I saw. Um, basically, almost all African American men are circumcised. Um, of the current generation, um, Hispanic men are around 50 to 60 percent because many more of them are immigrants. But the longer that family is American, the more likely that they, those boys are to be circumcised. Why? Because it was tied to hygiene. And if you know anything about being American, and if you've ever been in a soap aisle, you know we love our hygiene. We love being clean. How many showers do you take? Exactly. How many times do you wash your hair per week? Exactly. So, the idea was it was tied to hygiene. That your ho-ho was way cleaner if you cut it off. Cut off the, the foreskin. You circumcise your, your child. And so, basically, by starting in the late 19th century into the 20th century, basically all boys got circumcised. It, it went from a hygiene to med medicinal, and basically it became the thing doctors did. You, oh, you had a boy? All right. Um, we'll clean them up. We'll circumcise them. You can leave with them tomorrow. It, was, it, it became commonplace in hospitals. And so... Um, and so there we are. So this separates people out. This separates the Hebrews out. Now, you should understand, Muslim men, at least many uh, Middle Eastern Muslim men, uh, Arabs, Turks, uh, I want to say Persians, but as we get farther and farther and farther from the core, I'm less and less certain, so I don't want to promise, but I'm pretty sure Persian men, Iranian men, are also circumcised. Um, Islam follows a lot of Judaic identity, and so the Judaic rules, for obvious reasons that we'll get into when we get to part three of this course, um, 
And so Muslim Islamic men, uh, Arab men, and Turkish men, but a lot of Muslim men are also circumcised. So Jews and Muslims are circumcised. Christians, for the most part, aren't. Anglos are. People descended from England, culturally, if not literally, are. Um, But most Christians aren't. Again, this is a St. Paul problem. St. Paul is going around saying, okay, you want to be a Christian? You got to love Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, the light. The only way through to the Father is through him. And people go, all right. What else? All right. Uh, can't eat pork. And people are like, yeah. And all right. Lots of people leave. But some hardcore people will stay and be like, all right, all right, all right. I can go without the pork. Uh, you know, it'll be good. I'll eat lamb. It'll be fine. Got chickens. What else do I got to do? Anything else? Oh, yeah, you got to cut the bippy off your bippy. Well, boom, you just lost all your men right there. And you're going to lose a lot of moms who, like, look at their sons and go, yeah, I don't really want a big sharp knife near his hoo-hoo. Just, you know, just saying. This is an age without antibiotics. This is an age without antiseptics. This is an age without painkillers. So... St. Paul goes, oh, wait, 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 wait. Just kidding. You could keep your bippy on your bippy. And people go, oh, I can eat pork, eat bacon, and keep my bippy. Great. This is a great religion. And you can see, increasingly, for St. Paul to get converts, and early Christian uh, missionaries to get converts, they simply cut out a lot of these rules. So you can see where Christianity became Romified instead of Judaic, where it left Judaism behind and it became Roman. It became a Roman religion. All right, so back to so circumcision. So we have um, diet. We have circumcision. And we have religion, which we're going to get into in a moment. But the religion is they are going to come up with the one super all-powerful transcendental God. Monotheism. One God that does everything. Now, other people flirt with it, and our textbook talks about the... There's Zoroastrianism, which has... It's still polytheistic, but it's it has a light versus a darkness. There's Amenhotep, who has the supremacy of the sun god, but that's not monotheism. There's an attempt it seems to make these things into monotheism. Be like, yeah, this is monotheism. They, we worshipped one god. Well, you know what happened after Amenhotep? They got rid of that. For 18 years, there's the sun god. And then Amenhotep died. And what happened? Everyone went, yeah. Can we go back to our old gods? Which means it's not important. If it doesn't survive... The person who invented it, even if it is monotheism, it doesn't matter because no one followed it afterwards. It's not, a, it's not an example. It's a dead end. So, but Judaic monotheism, Hebrew monotheism is the real deal. It is going to give birth to Christianity. It's going to give birth to Islam. It is going to be the model 
for world religion in the world today. You see it you 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 see it in the language writers use. I see it all the time. They they write they translate Aeschylus, they translate Plato, and they use the monotheistic God. When that's not what they mean. It's the gods. They might mean Zeus. They might mean the supreme god, depending on what the context is. But they do not mean a one all-powerful god. And But modern writers have that problem. They see that and they go, oh, they mean God. Because their thought concept is of a monotheistic world. Whereas that's not the ancient world. The Hebrews are different from everyone else around them. And they're considered silly. Let's put this right out there, right at the start. No one takes them seriously. No one takes their God seriously. Nobody. You want to know how we know this? Look at the 10 plagues of Egypt. The Hebrews tell us no one takes this God seriously. Because if someone took this God seriously, when Moses said, "Uh, Pharaoh, I'm going to send a plague, this God... Our most awesome God wants you to let people go. He's going to send the plague after you. If anyone took that God seriously, that Pharaoh would say, All right, you're cool. Take, go away. Fine. Leave. We don't want to mess with your God. No. There's the first plague. Fine. You want to give Pharaoh the kind of like, All right, Moses is bluffing kind of thing? Fine. Let's see what power your God has. Boom. First plague. Any responsible person will go, okay, whoa, 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 dude, Moses, hey, whoa. All right. Take, take your people and go. No. There has to be a second plague and a third plague and a fourth plague. Oh, there has to be nine, ten plagues before, Moses, before Pharaoh finally goes, right, all right, fine. I get it. I mean, that is not taking a God seriously. And it makes sense, right? If you're going to get into a royal rumble, how many dudes do you want on your, to have your back? One or 12? Anyone who looks at this goes, you want 12 gods on your side. The Egyptians have 12 gods. The Greeks have 12 gods. 12 main gods are, well, of course, lots of little gods. Right? The, the Hindus... Several super gods. Well, you don't go into a fight for survival with one god. You bring your posse. Now, the Hebrews can say all they want. Our god's a super god. He's like Neo in the Matrix. He's like Bruce Lee in Taming the Dragon. Well, all right, fine. Put up or shut up. And then what happens? The Hebrews lose. They get conquered by the Egyptians. They get conquered by the Assyrians. They get conquered by the Babylonians. They get conquered by the Greeks. They get conquered by the Romans. Um, wait a minute. Your God's supposed to be powerful, right? Which means your God, first and foremost, is supposed to protect you. He's got your back. And you keep losing. What kind of God does that? A loser God does. And so you have to understand this. There's a reason nobody else is monotheistic in the ancient world. It's because it doesn't work. 
It doesn't solve people's problems. Nobody looks at the Hebrews as a model for success in terms of religion. They look at them and say they keep losing. They have one God and they keep losing. You know, if you're doing the same thing over and over again, it's at some point it's you. You know, we have 12 gods, we win. You have one God, you lose. You do the math. So this does separate the Hebrews out. It makes them special. Now, the Hebrews now have to deal with this problem of if we have a super God, why do we keep losing? And we'll talk about that when we get to the war section. But you have to understand, people don't take that seriously in the ancient world. No one's converting. No one's going to Jerusalem going, hey, you know what? Can you bring Judaism to us? And to be fair, the ancient Hebrews aren't selling. Why aren't they selling? Because the more you, the, you become less special, the more people who share your special thing. The more people who share something, the less it means, is basically the idea. Hey, we're special. We're Hebrews. Well, if everybody can be a Hebrew, well, then what does it mean to be a Hebrew? In fact, you're seeing this same argument in the immigration debate today. If just anyone could walk in and be an American, what does it mean to be an American? It has to be special to be an American. So it has to mean something. It's got to be tough. So even today, it's hard to become. It's hard to convert to Judaism. It ain't easy. You got to want, you got to mean it. Whereas Christianity, you need to take a bath and say you love Jesus. Christianity is completely different. You take a bath, you love Jesus, boom, you're a Christian. So, so these are the three things. The Hebrews are separating themselves out by diet, circumcision, by religion. They are trying to make themselves important in a world where they're not important. They are stuck between Egypt to their west and Babylon to their northeast. They are stuck between Philistines and Phoenicians. And they are surrounded by other Canaanite tribes who are more or less just like them. So, what to do? And this is what they did. Now, in our next episode, we're going to talk about what, their, what religion means. So, we're going to talk about polytheism. We're going to talk about monotheism. We're going to get into uh, religion. And we're going to try to show how Hebrew culture uh, created and affected an entire belief system that will affect the world. Thank you. See you next time.